you've joined Pathways to Resilience, the podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. And now, here's the host of the show, Melissa Santos. Welcome back to Pathways to Resilience, a podcast of community solutions. I am thrilled to have uh, my guest this month, Dr. Lynn Waldy, uh, joining me. Welcome, Lynn. Thank for, you. It's great to uh, be here. Yeah, for the t- for the topic of mining our mindfulness, and I'm excited for you to hear um, what we mean by this as Lynn and I dive into her work um, in the area of mindfulness. Lynn is a trauma psychologist and an adjunct clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and professor emeritus at Palo Alto University. And she recently published um, her most recent book, which is Mindfulness and Meditation in Trauma Treatment, the Inner Resources for Stress Program. So welcome again, Lynn. And um, I had so much fun when we had our conversation um, in preparation for um, our time together today. And I'm excited for others to be able to to tune into that. Um, Let's start with just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a studier of mindfulness. You know, it's really interesting that um, I came to it by way of books. And it was actually quite a long time ago when I was about eight years old. And I had, in my family, we had uh, trips to the library every week. And we were all required to go in and check a book out for the week. And we'd return it the following week. And, and so I had read as much in the children's section of the library as I cared to read. <laughs> and so I started sneaking over into the adult section. And I say, sneak, because if the librarian would catch me, she would say, no, no, you're in the wrong section. And she'd grab me by the hand and lead me over uh, to the other side. And I just thought, well, if it's so off limits, it must be obviously very, you know, right. Got to be something good over there. Yeah. Got to be something really good over there. So that just made me very determined, you know, to figure out what it was. So I looked around at all those very tall bookshelves and I couldn't make, you know, heads or tails. So I said, I'm going to start it on the first row, the first set of stacks, you know, at the, and work my way from one shelf all the way across, you know, until I, it wasn't a giant, it was a tiny library. And so I actually did that. I started at the top row of the farthest um, bookshelf and I started reading my way through and I'd have to do like evasive maneuvers on the librarian. Like if I, <laughs> if I heard her chair scraping on the floor, and my heart would start pounding because I'd be like, oh, she's going to catch me. You know? <laughs> so funny. Yeah. And then the other thing was that I would put my books on the, um, you know, the whole family would come and pile on the circulation desk to check out the books. And she didn't have a problem when I was checking out like principles of debate. That was fine. <laughs> but as soon as I started on the yoga and meditation uh, and mindfulness book, she started saying, hey, whose book is this? You know? Uh. And I would look at my dad, but you know, he would never lie for me. He, he would oh, never say, on, oh, that's dad, my yeah. book. Uh-huh. No, he wouldn't. He would. Yep. So they, you know, she'd say, whose book is this? And I, you know, my dad would look at me and I look at her and I say, it's mine. And then she'd go, oh, oh, this isn't good for you. And she'd toss it back in the return bin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which used to hurt my little feelings. Right. And so I got, 
I got like super sneaky about sneaking the books. So that's how I heard about it. And I actually just started, I thought it was really cool. So I just started meditating on my own. At just from, you know, yeah. Yeah. It just, I think it might have taken me about a year and a half to get over to the bookshelf <laughs> that had the <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I was nine by then. I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I love hearing about that. I mean, first of all, the determination and will <laughs> to get those books no matter what. And just, and you know, when we talked last time, you said, well, Melissa, there wasn't much to do where I grew up. Um, but so reading books was kind of my fun. Um, but I just find that fascinating that um, as, as it would be, as life would have it, that you were in this library, in this situation, sneaking these books and, and diving into to mindfulness. So from then it just became a passion and interest? Was it the curiosity that led you to look deeper? Well, I actually quite liked the meditation. And, you know, I, I often feel like kids, because we have spent a lot of time in our, uh, in a resources center teaching kids and adults. And I find that it's really easy to teach children because their mind, you know, if their mind's on it or it's, you know, they'll show you with their bodies what, what their focus of attention is. And so, um, I, you know, I, in some ways I found it a lot easier when I was little, it's yeah. very natural just to sit and be just openly receptive to whatever came in. But, um, you know, as, and so I did that on my own for about 10 years. And then when I went to college, I started going to a yoga center, which was in the day, the only, you know, yoga meditation center. And, in town and the teacher euphemistically referred to meditation sessions as breathing. Aha. You know, because it was Baton Rouge. I went to LSU and it was Baton Rouge, you know, in the in the 80s. And mm-hmm. so late 70s and 80s. And so it was like our breathing exercises. And I thought this is my very favorite part of the class. Um and so you know it was it just turned into something that I did over time because it it suited me. And I have found over the years in working with a lot of different people, teaching uh, meditation that uh, literally everyone that I work with starts meditating on a regular basis simply because it suits them. It's not for any other reason. Isn't that so cool? You know, and talking to you, because I think a lot of people probably when they first come in and meet you, I certainly know when I've, as I've tried to roll roll out mindfulness and meditation in my kids in my home, in my workplace, that at first people think they can't do it and that it's weird and woo-woo. And um, so, I, so I, I, I've experienced that as well. And then once you do it, it's like, oh, wow, well, I, maybe I want that again. That was actually, that actually yeah. felt, felt good. Um, and it made me so fascinated. Our last conversation got me so fascinated by your work and your perspective on mindfulness, particularly that you described mindfulness as a birthright. I found that just super profound when we last, I've been thinking about it since we last talked and um, that you talked, you said, you know, mindfulness isn't necessarily something that we need to learn or force on ourselves, but rather that we have all have the natural capacity for it. And we've just been disconnected from it at some point. Um, I so powerful. Tell us about that. You know, when I first started using mindfulness and meditation in a clinical setting, it was back in the late nineties. And 
I had a question mark in my mind then, like, would this really, is this really suitable for people? Because it was, there's a lot less research back then. And um, our first project was with um, Spanish speaking uh, Latinas who were family of dementia caregivers. It was a project I did with uh, doctors Dol uh, Dolores Gallagher Thompson and Larry Thompson. And I thought, well, I don't know if this is culturally appropriate or if it's appropriate for these women at, at, at the phase of their life that they're in now as caregivers. And so I approached the enterprise with a lot of skepticism and I was really surprised at how just much they liked it and how, and how much relief it brought them and um, respite from the stresses of caregiving. And I was a little surprised by that. I was like, why is this coming so naturally? We offered the intervention initially in Spanish translation. So the initial iteration of Inner Resources for Stress, I wrote for um, Latina family caregivers because wow. that was our first project. Mm -hmm. And um, and I thought, what? It, and so, and even, and later we worked with people with chronic depression and people were saying things like, I feel bliss when I do that. And I'm like, okay, I wasn't expecting bliss. I was expecting, you know, stress relief and yeah. feeling a little um, respite from, you know, the, you know, the mental stress that people have. And um, so I thought a lot about that. And, and over time I came to realize the reason why so many people at all walks of life find these practices to be very helpful is because they're really an extension of our own natural capacities as humans. We all have natural capacities for sustaining our present moment attention, for observing things non-judgmentally, uh, for having a sense of acceptance. So these are not thing hard things to learn necessarily because they're part of um, our development as people. And a lot of people's development gets um, stymied or derailed by stress and by uh, traumas that they experience. And um, so it doesn't mean that they're, that they can't do this, but it does mean maybe that there's some um, development that, that, that this is something that you can develop within yourself. I, I love the word, what you just said around this, that we have this capacity to presence ourselves and, um, of acceptance, isn't that? And so what do you think in your, in your work, just to your experience? Cause I would think, I think in our society, particularly, um, with the culture of judgment of, um, competition of achievement, um, it seems even if we didn't experience an, an extreme trauma or extreme stress that we pretty quickly get disconnected from that. Not every kid is going into the library at eight and finding the book, right? That we, we we're not teaching this as part of child development. So what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, a lot of people acquire a sense of self-love, self-compassion and acceptance just through their own attachment relationships as they're growing up. So it wouldn't necessarily be something that you needed to be taught. It would be something that you gain from those really early attachment relationships, which, by the way, don't have to be perfect relationships. They have to be good enough. They have to be good enough to give a person a sense in a very fundamental way that they're loved and that they're worthy. And so for people who have had 
um, sustaining and nurturing attachments in their life, which could be early attachments or it could be attachments they formed later in their life. Um, so for people who can uh, connect, connect with and, and draw on that, that, those healthy attachments, then it's a small step forward to start um, extending that sense of acceptance and non-judgment and non-evaluation toward your experience. It's not, it's, it's not a big step, right? It may come very, very naturally. Now, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, mm-hmm. so I work with people <laughs> who, you know, who may be seeking treatment or may be seeking some assistance with issues that have come up. And so not everyone has had the benefit of a sustaining and nurturing attachment relationship. And so their pathway may be longer. It may be more challenging. But I, but what I mean when I say that mindfulness is our birthright, it's that these are qualities that everyone possesses. You know, as, as horrible as some traumatic experiences are, they don't, um, they don't destroy people. People still have those qualities that they can develop. So it's not one of those things where you either have a talent for it and you Mm. should do it, or you don't have a talent for it and you shouldn't bother. Um, (laughs) Or you've had too, too many stressors and too few nurturing relationships and now you shouldn't bother. It's actually not like that, right? It's the, the sense that we all, it's just like, we all seem to have some musical ability Mm -hmm. to one extent or the other that can be developed and people have language abilities to one extent or another that can be developed. We can people can learn to be good speakers and good writers and good musicians, um, and all those skills are relying on some natural neurodevelopmental capacities that people have. And so, my sense of this is that I haven't, you know, throughout my career doing this for about the last twenty five years or so. Every time I go into a new setting, people say, oh, well, my, my, my people can't do that. That's too hard. You know, it might work for some other people that you've worked with before, but it won't work for these people. And I'm always prepared to be very skeptical and refer people to other kinds of treatment or intervention if it's appropriate. But again and again, I found that it appeals and it feels very natural to people from all walks of life. And I, I'm convinced that's because we're not asking people to do anything unnatural. You know, it's not like learning to be a trapeze artist, right? Mm-hmm. It's something much easier than that. When And how do you go about um, introducing it from, you know, from the, this won't work, or we don't have time for this. I mean, when I think about it with, from a, a perspective of leadership within a corporate culture or an organizational culture of, you know, well, this mindfulness is just the word of the month that we're giving employees and we don't really have, we don't have time for this or it doesn't belong here. How do you, how do you, what's, where do you begin with people? You know, it's possible to do too little to benefit and develop. And there's all, it's also possible to set such high expectations that you won't get a chance to develop. And so I actually see it on both sides. On the one side, um, in a lot of a lot of times, I think mindfulness is presented as some kind of get uh, you know quick fix, where just take a mindful breath and then you'll be fine. And the fact is, is that a lot of times the mindful breath can be extremely helpful, um, but it won't necessarily just momentary practice as much as that can really you know alter people's 
just physiological responses to stress in that moment. Like any other skill, it requires practice so that you have those skills ready for you. Um, and so that's on the side of doing too little where people get the message that, oh, all you have to do is walk around and be mindful during your day and take a deep breath when, when you're, you know, take a mindful breath when you're stressed and, and then you're done. Those things are extremely beneficial. But the fact is, and the research shows that the more people practice, the better they get. Not surprising. And mm-hmm. so um, on the other hand, on the extreme of kind of doing too much, so often people think of the end state, you know, because they've heard of these wonderful descriptions of advanced states of meditation. And they say, well, that didn't happen to me, or I could never do that. And so it might derail them from even trying, because they're thinking of that end state, which would be a little bit like, um, you know, going to a concert and listening to the musicians and saying, you know, I could never learn how to play the guitar because listen to that person, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not and getting that you, blissful feeling you described doctor. Yeah. I am not getting the bliss. So this, I must not be suited to this or uh-huh. I must be doing it wrong or this won't work for me. And so I, I think what's helpful about saying that it's a birthright is because it, it puts it on a developmental continuum that there's a trajectory and you just have to start from where you are. Uh, you can't start from where someone else is and you can't just, um, you know, hopscotch all the way to the end in one day. You know, some people are very good and have some capacities. Um, it's just like some people pick up an instrument and just start playing it. My daughter with the ukulele, I'm like, how did you learn to do this? And she's looking at me like, how did you not learn to do this? <laughs> you know, so some people have a bit of a, a an edge, I think they, they have some, um, some capacity that's built in, but everyone can learn and you have to start from where you are and build on it a little bit each day. And so if it doesn't suit a person to say, well, I'm going to start from now on meditating 30 minutes a day, most people can't do that on the first day. And, um, so the idea is to start from where you are and take then the very next step. And for some people that might be practicing for five minutes or taking one mindful breath during a stressful moment. Um, And that's your first step. But you can only step off from where you're standing and not from where anyone else is standing. And so there's no need for judgment. It's a little bit like saying, um, you know, I wish I could play I wish I could, you know, sing like a professional or something, right? It's like, well, you might, you might begin to successively approximate that with some guidance and with some practice. Mm -hmm. When, when I think of meditation, so a lot of times when I talk about mindfulness, people only think meditation and often that tends to be the thing that people feel the most unsure about, right? Like I, cause they do, they think about the 45 minutes laying down, ohm, levitation, whatever. Um, but so is, is it true to say that meditation is mindfulness, but mindfulness is more than just meditation? Um, you know, there's, there's so many different answers people might give you to that, but I'll just give you yeah, mine. Give me yours. Which is yeah. that, um, I think, I think of the two concepts as, as partly overlapping that there are a lot of kinds of mindfulness practice that you might or might not call formal practice 
or dedicated practice periods that you might think of more like meditation. Um, so sometimes people have uh, mindfulness of their emotions or mindfulness of their thoughts or just present moment mindfulness, like I'm taking a step and now I'll take another step. And um, so people would say that was mindful. So there's a lot of mindfulness practice that doesn't necessarily involve formal meditation practice, formal practices. Um, but there's also meditation is a very big word. Mm. A lot of different cultures over many millennia have practiced meditation in a lot of different traditions. And so that word means many things. Um, and some of that is partly overlapping with our concepts of mindfulness and some uh, uses of meditation are very distinct. So there, I see it like a Venn diagram where they're part, partly overlapping. Mm-hmm. So, so, and in the therapeutic realm, some people, some um, therapies use mindfulness, but they say, but we don't use meditation at all. Only mindfulness concepts. And what are some of those mindfulness concepts? Well, some of them are, um, I would call them more like self-monitoring more than maybe mindfulness per se, because they are limited to tracking our own reactions to things as we go on in our day. And mm. so, um, for example, if a person has, uh, wants to work on this sense that they just get so stressed and then they just explode, uh, one way to work on that is by self-monitoring better, because most of the time, if people are attentive and attuned to themselves, they can begin to notice in a very mindful way that their stress level is starting to rise. And then they can take some, some actions to deal with the stress of the, the situation um, and their own reaction to it. And that will forestall having a blowout. Yeah. And so, so that's self-awareness. an example. Yeah. Yes. Self-awareness. And it's very mindful, right? It's a little right. bit like, I'm going to check in with myself right now because that thing happened again at work, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm going to check in with myself and yeah, I notice my breathing's getting faster and more shallow. I'm getting more stressed. So let me take some, either take some actions out in the world to manage the situation or take some actions here with myself to manage my stress and response, maybe both. Um, so that those are concepts that are in a lot of therapies, um, in particular, uh, dialectical behavior therapy was where it first arose. And so that's a very specialized use, but also a very useful use. Yeah. of mindful self-attention, but you can see it's, it's, um, it's, it's very specific. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mindfulness of your rising, uh, of your, you know, developing reactions to things, to yourself and the world around you. Another, co- I know a concept that was, has, is still, is always helpful for me is just the simple act of presencing. Um, I, I'm a super visual person. So, and, and of course our minds are, my, my mind is always going right. And so I will be thinking about all these things and then I'm visualizing all these things. And some of them are replaying things that already happened. And some of them are creating story about what I think is going to happen. And when I can find, when I can stop it and just presence myself, I love from seeking safety. There's an exercise to just stop, count the number of windows you see count, you know, point out, you know, whatever, something in the room that just literally I can feel my thoughts quiet 
so that I can just get present. And you talked about that, that presence in the present moment um, is, is that mindfulness. So presencing that's, I imagine a concept that um, one of the concepts as you're talking about these different concepts of mindfulness. You know, what you're saying is so interesting because people have the dilemma as they become more mindful, they realize that their mind is um, going in a lot of different directions at once. And it can be very uncomfortable for people at the beginning stages, or maybe even after they've been doing it for a long time, can be uncomfortable as you begin to notice what sort of the quality of your attention is and the quality of your experiences. People just like you described, notice like, wait a minute, my mind's going, you know, 80 miles an hour. And I'm thinking of what I need to do next. And I'm thinking of the last thing that just happened. I'm not sure that I'm done with it yet. And my foot hurts or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the mind starts to feel very crowded and very over busy. And at that stage of people's mindfulness practice, they can become very disenchanted because they're like, wow, I wish, you know, this is uncomfortable for me to encounter this aspect of my experience. But I, I like to, to, to use a basketball example to explain this because have you ever noticed that um, I remember the first time I went to a pro uh, basketball game and I saw that there's a very famous basketball player who was warming up for the game by dribbling. Mm. And I thought, I totally don't understand. So one of the great, and also practicing free throws. And I said, this is the, the person who has a free throw um, record. Why does he need to keep practicing? And why the dribbling? They must have dribbled for tens of thousands of hours. Why are they so intent on practicing that dribble? Because they must, don't they know how to do this by now? And then when I watched the game, I saw that people were using all those movements in the court at very high speed. Mm. And so I thought, this is a lot like a meditation practice where there's a formal practice where you're doing the practice and not trying anything else so that you will cultivate those skills and those skills are ready for you when you get out on the court, mm. if you know what yes, I'm saying. I do, yeah. So, so the purpose of a meditation program is a little bit, you encounter all this material and you... Um, work with it in your meditation practice and inner resources for stress. We use a lot of letting go practice about, which means just encountering your own experience, but then letting it pass, you know, without holding on to it or, or pushing it away. And as you practice that in periods of formal practice, like sitting meditation, um, it's a lot like a basketball player practicing that dribble um, because as you practice that and hone your skill, then when you, then when you get up from your meditation and you go out into your day, those skills are ready for you. They're right at hand and it becomes much easier to do it. And without having to rely on kind of distracting yourself, um, to sort of pull your attention back. I've definitely found, found that. And it's true. It's just like anything else that when you, when it becomes, uh, and here we go with another analogy, but it's like first responders, right? Like, or a fire drill, like you do fire drills so that when the real thing happens that that you naturally know where to go Um, because your brain is going to be panicking. Right. And so exactly that with mindfulness, that the more, the more I practice um, 
the more consistently I practice than when I have those moments of I have fewer moments actually of feeling frazzled or feeling stressed or overwhelmed because I know I can, I can catch it and, um, and presence, um, and accept to do all those, all the kind of all the words that you talked about to say, okay, it's all good. I'm all good. I'm okay. Or maybe I'm not. And I need to step to the side and, and put on a five or 10 minute meditation to help ground myself. What, um, that's right. And a lot of the things people do in meditation, they can do in their in their daily life. And that's one thing that I think helps people a lot uh, do a meditation practice because it's not something that's intended to be separate from what you do in your life. It's not separate at all. It's really just like dribbling is to basketball. Like you're dribbling all the time in basketball because I understand you can't just carry the ball. So <laughs> it is like that dribbling you're using. I don't know a lot about, but Me <laughs> you're using those skills and, and they're the very same skills that you use in your life. Like letting go, being mindfully aware of your breath and the world around you, letting go of like self-judgment. Um, those are things you're doing during formal practice. And you just walk right out and keep doing those same things. What benefits have you seen? And um, so certainly there are people that are coming to you for treatment of depression or and you're using that as a treatment model. There may be people listening who aren't in treatment of any kind, who have a lot of stress in their lives though, or are feeling unproductive or wanting, you know, <laughs> there's been a ton of on additional stress over the last couple of years with the pandemic and just our, our work lives and our personal lives. What if someone is listening, who has been hearing this mindfulness thing, <laughs> um, you know, sees it kind of offered everywhere, but is like, I don't know if that's really for me. I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. what would you tell them about the benefits of giving it a shot? Well, the benefit is the same for anyone, no matter what their issues might be, whether they might have a diagnosis of some kind, or they don't have a diagnosis. It's part of the, what flows from calling it a developmental, you know, a neurodevelopmental capacity is to say, it really doesn't matter what your situation is, whether you see yourself as someone who's um, struggling, or you think everything's just fine, that everyone has the same set of developmental tasks to um, maintain, to develop and maintain their self-regulation. And so the task isn't any different for people who aren't treatment seeking, because the tests are the same to be able to regulate your attention, to be able to regulate your thoughts and your feelings and regulate your behavior towards other people. Um, and as people grow in that ability, they'll find that they, they get a lot of other benefits from it too, like um, being able to understand other people's perspectives better. You know, to say, okay, maybe that person's just not trying to be a jerk. Maybe they actually have a reason mm -hmm. uh, for, for acting that way and they need a little compassion right now. Um, so, you know, it's funny when I was, um, I really started a serious study of um, meditation when I was went to graduate school in Boulder. And I remember our first uh, year of um, graduate school, all the newbies, the first year students were all very know, anxious and all these famous professors and everything walking up and down the hall. And there was one professor who used to walk down the hall kind of scowling. And so we'd 
group in the office sometimes and say, did he smile at you today? Because he was a very famous, very brilliant <laughs> professor. We were very anxious that he should like us. And um, uh, I, re- I, re- I saw, there was a distinct change in the way I saw him before and after meditation. Because before, med- before meditation, I used to think, I'm pretty sure he's scowling at me. I must have said something quite stupid in class mm. the other day, mm. you know? And mm-hmm. I could go on with that for a while and in my own mind or with my friends, you know, Mm -hmm. and in the office with the door closed. (laughs) Um, After I started meditating for a few weeks, I saw him coming down the hall. I said, you know, he looks like he's thinking really hard about something. (laughs) Yeah. This is a person who had a lot of research going on. um, And I walked right by him and I said, hi. And he goes, oh, hi. You know, and I thought, well, it's simply not true what the second year students told me. He's a very friendly person, but I I think I more correctly identified his facial expression as not scowling at whoever walked down the hall, but just a person really deep in thought and probably working out, you know, some scientific and research issues in his mind as he walked. And so I offer that just an example of as you become a little more mindfully self-aware of yourself, you can sometimes begin to apprehend other people differently. Yeah. And how important, that's so important. I mean, it it came from, I think that was a wonderful example of thinking about that anything that press, you know, that professor scowl would have anything to do with you. Right. So from this, uh, so from worrying or thinking that other people are acting in a certain way because of me, but really it was me shifting my own perspective. That was the, my perspective was the issue issue, if you will, um, not not that person's facial features or, or facial expressions. I think that's such an important piece of it. As, as you've been talking, um, we you you're familiar with trauma informed as a as a term and we talk about that a lot in our work. Um, actually Oprah did a 60 minutes um, episode on trauma informed uh, care and talked about what you said from the very beginning around, well, first the shift from what's wrong with you to what's going on with you or what happened to you and how is it showing up today, which you could use in the example of the professor instead of what is wrong with that guy? He never smiles. Instead, right. it's, huh, wonder what's going on for him today that, you know, he's looking so serious. Um, and that at the core of um, being trauma informed is love. And she was talking to Dr. Bruce Perry. And so she said, I don't know if you saw the episode, but she said, no, he's a scientist, so he's not going to use the word love, but really it's, it comes down to, to love, to that, that attached relationship that could have been apparent for some, it wasn't for some, it wasn't until they were in their third grade teacher, or maybe it was their, you know, a, someone older in life or a friend. Um, but that, that attached relationship is what helps connect us not only to others, but uh, opens the capacity to connect with ourselves. So that, you know, I just see that's been so, um, well, it's been life-changing for me really to look at the, look at myself in the world through that perspective and not just when I'm, you know, at home in my personal life, but also in my professional life of how do I enter into relationship with people or just curiosity with people, whether we're going to have a relationship or not, um, with, presencing, acceptance, empathy, love, right? It makes a huge difference in, um, you know, how those conversations go, how, how things begin to manifest from that point 
um, I have found. You know, and sometimes that first step toward experiencing love and experiencing the present moment is saying um, that I am, I deserve this and I'm worthy of being cared for. And so I'll care for myself. And these things are not out of reach for me. It's a, it's a, just a matter of a develop, getting back on track with development as a person. And I don't mean to imply that traumatized people don't have very specialized needs because they do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole premise of trauma-informed care is that mm-hmm. generic approaches are, n- are not helpful because people very, very much have very specialized needs. Um, but part of what supports people through their recovery is the ability to cultivate these capacities that have gotten sidelined and gotten off track by the traumatic experiences that they've had. And so it's an invitation to begin anew and to say, I'm going to begin with the first step and that I'm worthy of that. And I'm, and I can, and I can do it. Um, And I can do that by seeking out people to support me, but also in my commitment to myself and just developing myself back and healing from the experiences that I've had. So in the inner resources for stress in your programming, where do people start? Where do people, if I, if you were, if I, where where are resources that people, if someone says, "Hmm, I want to go figure something out. I mean, you can get meditations anywhere right now, really, but, um, what do you, where do you teach or guide people to start? So one place people can start is on the concept website, which is um, something you can find by just Googling concept and Palo Alto university, because I have posted an eight week um, program that people can take for free and they can download materials from it. And anyone who wants to download updated materials, um, I think that's available through the Guilford website. Um, to people who purchase a book, um, but you don't have to purchase a book because we have that course that is free on the concept website. You just have to re- you have to register for the website, and then you can get the um, eight uh, video sessions, and you can also get the links to the um, audio recordings that help people with their home practice and with the uh, written participant manual. Well, look at that, an initial eight week course to get started. And we'll, yeah. um, we'll be sure to post that link when we uh, post the episode. So this is the question I, um, I ask each guest and that is um, what is resilience? You know, resilience is the ability, you know, if stress is getting overwhelmed by either external press or internal press, to the extent that a person's normal capacity gets overwhelmed, then resilience is the ability to be uh, recover from those stressors uh, easily. And the purpose of meditation is to help people develop the capacities that make them resilient. Mm. You know, I, I tell people, I said, you know, you're not going to change the world by meditating, but you can do a lot with how you respond to the world. Um, things is still going to happen. Stressful things will happen. And um, many of those are out of our control. Um, But what we can do is develop our own capacities for resilience. And I see them as grounded in people's self-regulation skills. You know, that, you know, most 
people develop a lot of self-regulation just coming up as children, right? It's just how our mm-hmm. brains develop. And um, it, that development can take place over the course of the whole lifespan, even if it gets put off by stress and by trauma. Um, we can re- regroup and retrack back on that trajectory, that developmental trajectory that we're in. It's, it's a set of skills that we can develop across the lifespan. And so resiliency is that capacity to withstand stressors. And everyone has their limits, right, about where their line is. But what I see is that over time and with practice, that people where people's line is gets further and further out and they get bigger and bigger in terms of their capacity to be resilient. Mm, I love that. That's and I and just and how an overall just message that's coming to me through our conversation is just how accessible it is. I mean, you could go and you could look for this eight-week course. You could also just sit and listen to it, the sound of a fan for five minutes a day and quiet your mind. It's not something that you have to go do a lot of schooling for. It's not something you have to spend a lot of money to 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 um, have. It's it's so accessible um, with really great results that you can feel. Right? It doesn't take long to feel the mm-hmm. benefit of it. In my That's experience, right. yeah. And, you know, like any set of skills that working in collaboration with someone can help you develop a lot faster Mm -hmm. Um, and practice helps you develop faster. Yeah. So, and I don't have one of those all-encompassing definitions of mindfulness. I do distinguish between distraction and mindfulness. And I do like to say any port in a storm, right? So if sometimes distraction is the very helpful use of attention, for example, if a person is getting um, a needle stick, um, distracting yourself for the 30 seconds it takes for the blood draw, why not? There's nothing wrong Uh with that. But it's when distraction is the only or the habitual reaction to everything that leaves us more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. to stress and not less. And so, you know, part of what we talk about in inner resources is there's so many different ways you can use your attention. Um, and it can, you can use it in different ways to um, respond to different kinds of stressors. Yes. Yes. And how, and how empowering is that also, right? It's I, I get to choose, I can choose what to do with my attention rather than being at the mercy of stressors and outside forces when I'm not being mindful about it. Right. That's when I'm kind of at the mercy of what's happening around me. That's right. It does put you back in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so where can we find your book, mindfulness and meditation in trauma treatment? You know, it's on Amazon and it's also on the Guilford press, um, website. Great. We'll make sure those links are there too. Thank you. I just really appreciate um, this time uh, that we've had together and the conversation around uh, mining our mindfulness. And I hope, you know, that theme kind of is resonating now around, you know, it's in there. We've all got it in there. Um, And as you said, it's kind of first deciding where am I on this developmental spectrum Um, and, you know, finding an opportunity to sort of step in where we left off, so to speak, um, and reconnecting. So thanks for your time. I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy to hear about all the work that you all are doing at Community Solutions. Thank you. I will talk with you soon and take care. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.
I hope you liked the concept of mining for mindfulness as much as I did. Uh, I was, as I said, really struck by the idea that mindfulness is a birthright, that it's um, part of human development and something that um, we can reconnect to if I think like many of us, we've been disconnected from it. I know in my own life and in my own practice that meditation and mindfulness have made a profound difference on um, my relationship to self, my relationship to my children, um, just my the way I am in the world. Um, and then my worldview and life experience um, has, as Dr. Waldy said, sort of expanded and opened, it's softened. Um, and uh, I'm better at on some days than others in doing it, making time for it. But on the days that I do, uh, it certainly makes a difference. So I hope that what you'll take from this is to think about where you are on the developmental continuum of practicing mindfulness. Maybe it's something that you've tried, but um, haven't developed a consistent practice for. Uh, maybe it's something you do every day, like we heard last month from Melanie um, as part of her recovery from post-traumatic stress. Maybe it's something that you've been pretty unsure about, but um, this has piqued your curiosity. If you go to the uh, concept website that Lynn talked to us about, um, there is a self-paced eight-week course that I would highly recommend. Um, and it's, uh, if you go to training.concept.paloaltou.com, .edu and search in the courses for inner resources for stress, mindfulness for self-care, you will be able to register. And um, in this course, you'll learn mindfulness and meditation techniques, um, talk about how to implement them and, um, and incorporate it into your everyday life. So there's the action step from this episode is to go check that out or to just Google mindfulness or Google meditation and give yourself the gift of quieting your mind. Whether that be through meditation, whether that be through presencing, whether that be through doing that inventory of your emotions, what are the things that are stressing you out? Is there a pattern? When you begin to feel stress, becoming aware of that. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next month. Thanks for joining Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, visit us at www.communitysolutions.org.